Hey everyone, welcome to Midwest Mixtape, a podcast that focuses on the landscape of the music industry across the heartland of the U.S. We're sitting down with Midwest musicians from a range of backgrounds and genres to talk about their experiences pursuing their passion as a profession. We're your hosts. I'm Emily Polstoy. And I'm Natalie Novak. We're here today with David Zolo, a Midwest music extraordinaire who's been pursuing music since 1992. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, guys. Absolutely. So our first question, like pretty basic, we got to get get to know you a little. like Get the background. Yeah. What? Like, tell us a little bit about your background in music. Sure, sure. Yeah. In fact, I've got I've had a lifelong uh, relationship with music, as we all have. I grew up, let's say I was born in Boston. My parents were... Um, met there in college. Um, my dad applied to the Writers' Workshop when I was a little baby, which is the graduate fiction program at the University of Iowa. Oh, cool. A real prestigious place. In fact, I think he had to apply a few times, but he finally got in. So my parents moved to Iowa City um, in 1970, so I was just a baby. Um, my grandfather, my mother's father, he was a Steinway and Dorsey and, and led the orchestra at a place called the Stork Club in Manhattan, which very is yeah, cool. a very famous place. So he had a, a big orchestra there, and he was a real presence just um, emotionally and intellectually when I was growing up. He wound up being a real, um, a real uh, kind of influence later because I did a thesis at the University of Iowa on his life, and it was kind of a history of of what they called white jazz. I don't know if that's an acceptable term in this day and age, but, you know, he, he, he let, I mean, he was, the, the guys that he worked with, they were very colorblind, but he left home at 18, and it was a generation of white musicians who fell in love with African-American music. Not, not unlike what happens, you know, what happened with hip-hop or, or blues or any other number of kind of genres. But, so I studied at the Prussell School from the ages of 8 to 17. It's a very... Um, it's become a real famous place. It was the second, I think, Suzuki school in America. So Bill Prussell, who's still alive, uh, Bill and Doris, both uh, teachers, he was a, a faculty member at the University of Iowa, string faculty. Very famous family. They play at Carnegie Hall as a family. Kids, um, uh, Bill Jr. was the, um, the musical director of the Cleveland Quartet and played with Yo-Yo Ma's pianist. So, I mean, they, these, they're very heavy family. Um, and Doris, though, uh, wound up being one of the uh, three women that had a real influence on me continuing to play the instrument because I was ready to quit at every opportunity. But but Doris was really encouraging and, you know, I was not the most diligent student, but she found a couple of things that she really encouraged. And then my teacher, Lori Chrisman, who started when I was about 11, she left the university, she got her dissertation and went to Prusel. So she taught, and then she actually taught my son, who's 20 now, who's a sophomore at Iowa State. Very cool. Yep, full circle. So I, I, my senior year in college, um, I, uh, I dropped out to play music. I wrote a bunch of songs and, and formed a band called High and Lonesome. And that band um, was around for about seven or eight years. But that's what, and I, and I was literally playing professionally within about six months. And, and I've done it ever since. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we read that you began playing music at just like four years old. So I started the piano, yeah, when I was four. We were wondering, like, did you always know you wanted to be a musician? Because you mentioned you wanted to quit. Yeah, no, I wanted to be a writer. I thought, you know, my dad was a, was a, uh, wrote prose fiction. Um, you know, my band is called The Body Electric, named after a Walt Whitman poem. Um, prose fiction and poetry were things that I, I studied, uh, you know, closely. Uh, it's funny how... How sometimes, you know, some of that stuff can carry over, but rock, rock and roll was a real passion for me as well. You know, I grew up listening to all kinds of uh, popular American music, jazz, blues, country, 
uh, honky-tonk music, which has been a huge influence on me. So yeah, that stuff, gospel, all that stuff. Um, but I never thought I would be a musician, no. The cool thing about growing up in Iowa City is it's a town really full of artists, you know. The graduate writing program where my dad went is the best in the world and, and world famous, but at the time, the printmaking program graduate school was also the best uh, in the world. A guy named Mauricio Lozanski started it. And he was, until he died a few years ago, at like 101, was considered the greatest living printmaker in America. He did a thing called the Nazi triptychs, which were huge, hugely, and they're in the National Museum in D.C. So it was a place full of artists where it was really not that unusual. Well, you know, you're from Cedar Rapids, right? Yeah. Uh, it's full of pretentious artists, but also uh, <laughs> people that will encourage you, you know, that, like, like when I quit college to be a... Um, a musician, nobody said it. That's crazy. That's stupid, you know. And so that that's a really um, um, warm and supportive environment to to come out of. And so um, I just jumped in and did it, you know, because my dad was friends with a lot of musicians who I ended up working with. Who when I had I started a record label in '94 called Trailer Records and put out works by Greg Brown and Bo Ramsey and and guys that were my mentors at the time. And so, yeah, I just, I did that too because I didn't know any better, you know. Sometimes it's good to not really know um, what you're getting into because, you know, my life mirrored my grandfather's who had to kind of hustle rock and roll, really put a dent in his uh, career, and he hated it. I know the passion. I'm sure he'd be proud of me. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, he, was, he played jazz in the mid-'50s. Um, uh, it, it rock and roll came and it just and it just it took the legs out from a really a great American art form, a very sophisticated American music, and it's really been relegated. I think, although I'm sure a lot of my jazz playing friends would be pissed to hear me say it, but it's been relegated to the classroom ever since, and and that sucks. Um, but my grandfather was uh, is known best known for being the mentor to a, a, a trumpet player named Bobby Hackett, who was extremely famous, and so. He was like a little brother. My grandpa gave him his first job, and he was a prodigy guitarist, and he just graduated high school. And my grandpa bought him a trumpet, or a cornet, um, after a gig one night, and then P.B. Russell, who was also on the band, taught him to play. So my grandpa was part of these guys that were formed the Dixieland Revival in New York in, in 51, 52, 53. So that was, um, so when rock and roll came, he moved to Cape Cod, and Bobby Hackett followed him, and they started a jazz scene there. But you know, I think it was, I think the last 20 years of their lives were were kind of a, a hustle and a struggle. But, but you know, um, being an independent musician, that's what that's what you're up against, or or you can embrace it. I mean, I, I, I played with a guy named Todd Snyder. I played piano with him, and he was on uh, Universal MCA um, Nashville. And I saw plenty of corporate music, and, it, and I think that really sucks. Mm -hmm. It sucked then, and it sucks now, and it'll suck when it's, you know, until somebody sticks the knife in it finally. Right. Did you ever have a vision of going to the coasts or going to Nashville? or? So I did live in Nashville when I played with Todd. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, briefly, um, we thought about staying. My wife's from Des Moines. Um, and there we briefly, briefly thought about it. But we're Midwesterners, and we're Iowans even more so. And so there was a lot about the town that just... Um, it just wasn't for me. Um, I, I, you know, I, I was blessed because I had that gig to do a lot of cool stuff. You know, I did a lot of late night TV shows and that kind of stuff, just as a side musician. But I just didn't want any part of of, of a, a. You know, I remember meeting with with publishers that you know when I was looking at getting a publishing deal after I stopped playing with Todd, and they were like, "Oh, you got to change the, 
language is too, uh, I was like, man, I don't want to assume that my audience is stupid or, you know, like there's a real sense um, in, in kind of in the halls of that world. And it's not run by musicians for the most part or, or the musicians that are work in, in kind of mid-level corporate jobs of, you know, holding positions of decision-making have forgotten what it means to, I think, get out. And, and, and really, I love this job because it's brought me closer to people, you know, right. not because I don't want anything that's going to put more distance between myself and, and the audience. And being from Iowa, you know, my music's about growing up here. My music's about living here. So those things have a big, you know, part of, of um, my artistic identity. And that's, I'd have to sacrifice that, I think. But I, it does come up all the time. People, oh, you should... Why aren't you? And it's like, man, I'm too fucking old now. And, and I, I wasn't interested in it when I was young. So now, you know, I, I've been really lucky. You know, my goal was always to make a living. That was, to me, was a success. And, and I've done it for 32 years now. So I, I'm happy. But, yeah. but for a lot of people, it wouldn't have been enough. I know a lot of, a lot of my friends and colleagues that, you know, that's what they wanted. They wanted a, a somebody. And I get it, you know, because it, it is a hustle. And, you, and it's a tough um, it can be a tough life, you know, you're on the road doing one-nighters all the time. I play probably 120, 150 nights a year still, so. Wow. But I love it, and I mean, it's not work to me, so yeah. It, it, but it, it's a give and take, you know. But I have complete autonomy, and so I can tell anybody to, you know, piss off that I want to, or I can tell anybody else, yeah, I'll work with you, I want to work with you, yes, let's do. So I've, I've done a lot of producing or playing with other musicians, and those things are real gratifying. Yeah. Are there, do you think there are challenges with staying in the Midwest versus going to a big city? Yeah, so I think the two, like the, the, the real dichotomy is the challenge is there's no industry here. Sure. The great thing about being here is there's no industry. Yeah. So you know what I mean? It's like, because the industry will shape you yeah. if you're going to stay in it. You know, that's, you know, that's what I was saying. Like being, you know, being a part of a corporate, you know, like being an employee of a corporation, they're not going to, you know, there's not going to be any stepping out of, out of, you know, whatever lines that they've drawn for you. And, and to me, that's antithetical to the idea of doing what I do, <laughs> you know, like I wouldn't sign up for this really kind of itinerant lifestyle if, if, if I'm going to let some corporate asshole tell me what to do, pardon my English. But, but at the same time, you know, that, that can make it, you know, so it can make it difficult because getting exposure can be hard. Right. But I've found, you know, as, as there's less and less um, gigs out there, you know, um, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're good at what you do and, and if you've done it for 30 plus years, you should be at least, you know, competent then then you're going to be able to get work and you're going to be able to have a life in music and that's all I really like I said that's all I really wanted absolutely I feel like maybe this is just because I'm getting older appreciating music more but I feel like people in the midwest have a different appreciation for music I absolutely. think absolutely there's a huge community like we went to hinder hinterland this yeah, past year yeah, and it's a great festival everyone there was definitely there for music yeah. it wasn't to drink to party I right, mean obviously right. that's fun but people were there to just listen yeah and, I, and they have all kinds of cool absolutely. genres different different styles and yeah. yeah I mean and I think that's another thing that the industry does is it draws these boundaries around you know because then you got to when you when you're selling something you know when you when you're commodifying something you've got to be able to sell it in in modern America especially mm -hmm. um, post war post World War two America you know that's been the thing so they create these you know narrower and narrower um, you know boundaries around what you can do and it's all based on this kind of idea that 
you play a certain style of music. And that's kind of the focus of, of the major labels was to, you know, find a Garth Brooks and then make 10 more Garth Brooks or find a, an Eminem and make 10 more Eminem. So well, the great thing about Eminem is that, you know, he came out of an organic experience and had some shit to say. And maybe Garth Brooks, not as much, but hey, <laughs> that's just a matter of taste. And there's no accounting for taste. That is a, a truism. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, but, but yeah, to get back around to the original question, it, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's definitely, um, there's great stuff about, about having no industry, but there's, you know, it can, it can make for challenges. But, but I do think, you know, also about Midwesterners, um, a lot of my bandmates or former bandmates are from Chicago. And I know guys that live in sh somewhere in the Chicago area, most of them in the city, but some in the suburbs. They work 300 nights a year, 300 shows a year, and never leave that area, which is amazing. And that show, I mean, there's a culture of working musicians in, in the Midwest um, and in the, the Southeast somewhat too, I think, but, which, which is a really cool thing. Mm -hmm. Who are some of the biggest musical influences for you, like on your sound? So a lot of the Iowa musicians that I, that I kind of grew up listening to and working with um, were obviously big influences. But um, nationally, um, you know, I was a big fan of uh, Bruce Springsteen's first couple of records, which kind of were mixed sloppy bar band magic with, uh, you know, uh, kind of wordplay and um, early Van Morrison records. And those two guys, I mean, Springsteen was obviously influenced by like Astro Weeks and Moondance and that early Van Morrison stuff. And then the 70s, uh, like 68 to 75 Rolling Stones records, yeah. um, which kind of mix, you know, blues and honky-tonk and American folk music and gospel music. So those, I would say, are three big ones, but also, like Buck Owens, um, his band in the mid-60s was the best band in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Like, the live record that they put out in, I think, 65. Um, I mean, the fucking Beatles covered Buck Owens. That's all you need to know about whether Buck Owens had his right. shit, whether he was on point. Right. So, yeah, and I, I love uh, Muddy Waters, Buck Owens, George Jones. George Jones and Muddy Waters, to me, like, represent these two poles of American popular music where they could sing any stupid shit <laughs> that you could throw at them, and it would be like you'd so be good. crying, yeah. transcendent, yeah. So and good. so as a singer yeah. and as yeah. somebody who loves singers and loves melody, yeah, I, those, those two guys are probably, like, um, just as stylists, as American stylists, at the top of my... Of my uh, hero list yeah how would you describe your style of music you know roots music is kind of a, a common description um you know american roots sure. music yeah how is that like similar to folk music like well, could you yeah, tell us a little yeah, bit yeah, about so, it like the genre americana which is what they now use in nashville and and when i lived there in 96 they were just starting to throw that term around like as a like a marketing um Buzzword. Yeah, buzzword, exactly. So now, I, I think I was there when they had their first Americana uh, Music Awards. In fact, the guy who played guitar with Todd Snyder, when I played with him, who plays with Emmylou Harris now, won, you know, the instrumentalist. It's like, I could wow. give a shit. But yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> but so Americana, uh, roots music, um, um, so you're, that to me incorporates any kind of the, the, the seminal or fundamental American musical styles, folk. Um, country western, blues, jazz, gospel, um, and can you know take freely from any of those things and 
And, but I mean, I can't tell you how many times people have asked, you know, what do you call that, that what you play? It's real hard to, you know, it's like, well, that's why you don't have to worry about it because I'm not on a major label and I don't give a shit and they can call it whatever they want. Uh, as Sonny Boy Williams said, call it your mother. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say there's like some rock undertones as well? Yeah, absolutely. In rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, like I call myself a rock and roll musician. Okay. And, and to me, though, like rock and roll. That's what it does. It draws from those, um, whether it was, you know, Dion in 1956 or uh, I don't know, um, whoever. Yeah, any, any contemporary rock and roll artist. They're all kind of working from the same, um, you know, drawing from the same well, I think. Do you think like Americana, like um, roots music, like do you think the Midwest has their own kind of distinct genre of it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and I remember when I had trailer records, I think I put up maybe 35 or 40 records. But in Europe. They talked a lot about that label and the Iowa sound, they called it. Um, and I think, you know, Greg Brown and Bo Ramsey were two of the of the guys. Joe Price is another guy who's a blues artist that I put out records for um, for the years that, that the label was operating. Can you tell us a little bit about starting your music label, why you started that, why you decided to step into that? Yeah, so it was really because there, was, there wasn't one, you know, there wasn't an industry there. And at the time, it was just, so this was 94, the, you know, the internet was barely a thing, you know, and... Um, so it was, you know, I put out cassettes along with, you know, I mean, and doing CDs instead of vinyl was a big deal. Like it was a dangerous thing. Now, of course, now uh, vinyl's the only way to go. Uh, or, you know, or, you know, yeah, which I can't stand, but that's another, <laughs> that's another story for another time. Uh, but yeah, it's, so I just did it because, you know, Bo and I were, were working together and um, they had started a label called Shed Records, Bo and Greg and Radislav Lorkovich, who was Bo's former piano player before I joined up and started playing with Bo. And so, yeah, so we just, I just started it because I was young and dumb enough to do it. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and it, I mean, it made it about 12 years, which by the time it, it kind of uh, exploded, imploded, it was 2006 maybe, and it was just, a, a, you know, not a good time for independent labels. Because a lot of that market share was, you know, being sucked up by these major labels, and they wanted to stomp out any kind of competition because they saw the internet as this massive threat to their hegemony, and it has been somewhat, but they're still around, which means it wasn't enough of a threat, you know. So I kept hearing other people say, "Oh, the new modality is coming. Fuck off with your fucking new modality." Then, then, and the other shoe just never dropped. What is it like working over musicians, or kind of? Does that yeah, make yeah, sense versus yeah, being yeah. a musician oh, yourself? It was the worst because, um, you know, I mean, I'm not a business person like sure. in that sense. Um, and you have to be somewhat, uh, you know, about your business to, to not get eaten alive. I, I'm, it's probably a miracle I made it as long as I did because I, I was literally funding it, you know, on credit cards and out of my own yeah. pocket. So, and you know, you'd think like once I put out a Greg Brown record, it would have made everything would have been cool. But it it actually more money, more problems. Yeah. Like <laughs> that old saying is very true. So suddenly you're hiring publicists, which don't really work like they used to. But back then, if you didn't have one, you know, nobody was gonna, you know, write about the person whose record you're putting out on that level. You know, so being being an indie label it was very expensive to become a successful indie label mm -hmm. um now like in europe i had a lot of success and that didn't require as much money as it did you know 
the quality of the work, I think. But but here it was just hard to get, you know, in the door. But I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of, of the work that we did. And it was, even though I ended up doing all the, the business stuff and, and was the one putting the money on the line, it was really the, the music by all these different musicians. While it lasted, it was this beautiful kind of family hippie thing. And, and it was beautiful. We all played on each other's records. But the minute, you know, I signed this national distribution deal and it required all this money and it, it all went to hell and, and all the good vibes were gone. And, you know, I mean, I was left holding the bag. There's no question about it. And But more importantly, I, you know, I, I became estranged from people who I love dearly. And that really went contrary to the whole point of starting it. Um, but also, I mean, I got a temper. Once it's gone, it's gone. So I also kind of stuck my heels in and, and just said, "Fuck you," then, <laughs> and that wasn't that wasn't helpful. Um, so to answer your question, I was a shitty business person, but because the music was good, we had a nice long run, and because the people were righteous. I mean, the people that I was working for and with were beautiful people. It just unfortunately, you know. I thought that, you know, doing business with friends was not a big deal. You know, everyone said, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, whatever you do, don't do that. And of course, yeah, they were, they were right, and I didn't think they were, and that bums me out. Like, that's the biggest disappointment about the whole thing, that it, it did. And, and everybody was probably fully justified to have their, you know, their personal bitches with the way things happen, myself included. So, But I did my best to kind of, you know, honor the the verbal contracts that I had with all these people because that's all I could do really. So kind of like from your approach, like what was it like navigating starting this record label? Like have, did you have any kind of knowledge about how to do that? Or? No clue. But that's the beauty of it. I mean, you know, like once I realized I could do it and just be like, fuck all y'all. Uh, and I'm going to join up with my friends. And most of the people on the label were older than me at first. At the start, it was me. Like Greg Brown used to call me YDZ, which stood for Young Dave Zelda. Now I'm ODZ, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and Greg just retired. So there you go. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I had no clue, and that was liberating in a lot of ways, until it wasn't, you know, until you realized, holy shit, you know, like I'm out in the wind here, and I don't know what I'm doing, and now I've got, like, you know, I've got a baby, and I've just spent his college education on bullshit. So, I mean, you know, it, there's a lot of stuff on the line, and and but you know my kid he got a full scholarship so good for him and fuck everyone else so, and, and I tell him I said you do not know how much of my ass you saved when Literally. you did and your own too yeah yeah, yeah. bless um, bless his heart you were your first band that you were a part of was High and Lonesome correct yep yep uh, and then you were a part of the Body Electric yeah so the Body Electric is the band that I started um, to basically replace High and Lonesome okay. And then is that still going today? Still is, yeah. That's what I still call my band. And, and I've had actually the same band now for everybody that, that I play with, I've been with for at least 10 years. So, yeah, it's been a great run. And these are a great group of guys, great musicians, beautiful people. Yeah. We have a real good relationship. And, you know, we work enough, I think. But these guys, um, you know, everybody, yeah, I just, I can't speak highly enough about, about the people that I, I work with. And, and I tell you, in this, in this, business this this world that's what you need you just need to yeah good people it's all about the people you know whether it's the audience or the band or or the, or the, the you know the club owners or the promoter every everybody if, if you're working with good people and everybody realizes that you know you're all kind of working towards the same goal then then it doesn't have to be like 
a big kind of capitalist production where one person's trying to get over it because that's the American way, right? You know, I feel like fucking George Carlin, but it's true. Like this idea that this is the way I'm going to make my money and I'm going to get over it, and you artists can fuck off. Well, it doesn't have to be like that. And the good thing about the, the shrinking of the major label system is that at least you're seeing more people out there um, but I don't need somebody to come along from L.A. and say, oh, you fucking bumpkins, how have you managed to make? And I've heard that shit more times than I can tell you. And there's nothing that I dislike more than some urbane, you know, ass coming, who, you know, with maybe even with Midwestern roots. Say, I've been in L.A. working in the big leagues and you fucking kids out here. It's like, get out of here, man. Like, I've been working for 32 years without any of your help. And guess what? I'll probably do it till I die. So. I mean, but that, that is a common sentiment for people that, especially in Des Moines. I mean, and since, like you said, that, that that's one of the, the ideas mm-hmm. behind the, you know, the impetus of this, this whole project, mm-hmm. I should comment on that because Des Moines has seen an influx of this, you know, it, it's amazing. I mean, I started working Des Moines in 91, 92, that, that time frame, and it, there was nothing going on here. It was an insurance town. It was square. Des Moines has got this, as I was saying, this like this influx of people that are that are coming here because it's it's cheap, but it's hip, right. and it's it's the new spot that you know that people with artistic boho tendencies can come and and do their thing. Like Detroit was this way. It seems like ten years ago. I mean, all these cities where that's available, you know where there's, you know, like studio space is cheap and where there's all these available resources. I think, you know, we may see more and more of that happen, but it's happening in Des Moines now and I think it's great, but you're seeing a lot of people come in, like I said, saying, you know, hey, let us show you the way it's done. And it's like, I don't need it, thank you. So, uh, and that's, that's again, like all the, every, all this stuff has the good and the bad that comes with it, you know? So, I mean, and I don't begrudge anybody that, you know, is an attorney that like there's Brandon Clark is a friend of mine who's a music business attorney in Des Moines. He's really successful. And in fact, I was asked to lobby Charles Grassley to be a part of it. Yeah, of the AMP Act. And, and they couldn't find any other Iowans to do it. So I did it and I brought Brandon Clark along and he ended up knowing all the same people as the Grammy, the head of the Grammy organization. Um, they're, they're, their uh, PR arm was the guy in charge of this thing, but that was a that was a debacle in its own right for a lot of ways. But but the law, but they passed the bill, and it, and it's really ha- will have an impact on independent producers because it allows them to start a clearinghouse like BMI or ASCAP, but for producers. So if you say I'm going to produce your record and you're going to give me a point, like, well if it's an indie record, how the hell are you going to keep track of it? And who <laughs> who says you know you sold how many records? So yeah, this will be a way to to chart those things and. And it, it's going to be a big deal for I think. And then they had me lobby, help them lobby for some more stuff that never did get passed right before the election. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been. It was really interesting, and I, I needed it. That was like two years into the last presidential administration, and I was kind of losing hope that, yeah. that um, you know, yeah, they were going to defund the NEA and they were going to get rid of it. It's like, oh my God, am I going to have to move out of the country? <laughs> like, are they going to put open, open season on you know? Artists, I mean, maybe I'm not an artist, <laughs> you know, a lot of people would say I wasn't, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm curious, so you said you've you've toured Europe as well? Yeah, quite a bit, yeah. So what does is, what is touring look like for you now, and how has it looked like in the past? So, you know, when I first started, I toured, you know, 
insanely, relentlessly, you know, um, whether it was with Hein Lonesome, and we'd be, in fact, one of our, our old drummer, drummers has a, a book from like 1996, and it's insane. You know, it's like 300 nights, and it's Birmingham, Alabama, and New York, and it's like, how the fuck did we do that? Oh, drugs, shit. <laughs> I had to give those up. You can't keep, keep on doing that forever. But um, yeah, it, um, it, so, so then that was like 92 through 96. That was still kind of what I consider tail end of the live music era, which I, I kind of consider like the late 60s as the technology was improving. Of course, I was just being born, so I didn't see it, but from what I know, till the, you know, the mid 90s. And then things changed, you know, things started changing just because of, I think, I think there's a lot of reasons, you know. Um, drunk driving laws, I think you had, um, the amount of entertainment, you know, if somebody's paying $180 to, to, you know, to get the internet and cable TV, they're going to stay at home on. There's also a lot of depersonalization, I think, of, of, of what we consume. But, but, um, but so, so there was a lot of gigs then, and there's a lot less, ven- there's just less venues now. Europe, um, you know, the first time I toured there in 90, like right at the beginning of my career, um, I went to Italy, uh, and I've gone to Italy probably 20 times to tour since, and that's been a, just emerged as a market for me. And yeah, it is. It really is. And and they really love love the music. They know the music, and they're pretty um, knowledgeable about the stuff they like anyway. And and they, you know, if they know who I am, pretty fucking knowledgeable. And I've been turned on to other obscure American, you know, roots artists. Um, that are just amazing. So yeah, a cool experience, great people. And like I said, that to me is, is what fundamentally keeps me doing this and, and keeps me loving doing it is, is the relationships. That was actually one question I was gonna ask. Like if people like your music, what are some other uh, Midwestern artists you like to <laughs> shout out? Yeah, well, you know, Brother Trucker is one. They're, they're a great band and they still play. They don't play as much as they used to. Um, boy, that's a good question. Didn't think about shout-outs. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, I see all kinds of music that I love. You know, the more the, the more obscure tends I tend to like more just because I can have a better experience as a as a viewer and as a, a concert goer because I like to be up close and personal with it, probably because it's what I do. Um, but I like stuff that you know, I like I like stuff made by people who I know. And since I, I keep company with a lot of musicians. It's convenient because I know a lot of people that are actively making music, you know, but there's there's so many great musicians here in Iowa that, that most people don't know. So, I mean, I would say start in the town that you live in and look around and you can probably find some, there's a great, a great tradition of songwriting here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's some really cool independent music being made. How has the music industry changed since your career started? Well... <clears throat> It's a good question, you know, and I don't even know if I, I know. Um, you know, the internet has has changed things. And people, like I said, were always saying, oh, just wait, you know, the, the internet is gonna equalize the equation and everybody's gonna, and that's bullshit. I mean, it's just not true. All it's meant is that the sewer pipe for the shit to flow through is huge. And it's like, good luck standing in front of that. It's like getting a fire hose instead of a drinking fountain. But if you can, you know, if you can, kind of, I don't know, mitigate that universe, you can come by a lot of really cool stuff that you never have the opportunity to hear. So in that sense, it has been realized, you know, I think the potential of it. But really, to me, the internet has just been another fucking sales tool, you know, and so whether they're selling, you know, porn or what, or, you know, politics, which seems to be what the internet is made up of, 
I'm really not interested in either one and never have been. So, like, I I suppose if I started a TikTok channel and, you know, did covers of Bruce Springsteen songs, somebody might be interested, but probably not too many. So I haven't exploited it like I suppose. Like, I mean, you'll see these young people, like, the, are cover artists getting their start. Like, that's the new... And that blows my mind because that is of no interest to me. But I'm also old and I'm also not going to be the guy who's like, back in my day, shit was cool and now it's lame. Because it's not. It's just different. And and so it's just a different, you know, kind of, you know, thing you've got to navigate. And I don't know that I know how, but I don't think it, it's too late for me. You know, I kind of consider myself on the downslope in a lot of ways, in a good way. You know, I've done this for 32 years and I've done probably 150 shows a year on average. So that's a lot of gigs yeah. and a lot of, you know, everything from big stages, to, but a lot of bars and a lot of coffee houses and a lot of outdoor Iowa venues. And I love it. I love it that that's, that my career has largely been supported by people that I, that are my, um, you know, there are people from, I'm, I'm a part of a community. That's what I love. I love being, I live in a town. My son went to school there. You know, my wife works there. Uh, that's, I'm a, just a musician. That's just what I do in the town where I live. And I, and I saw that as possible in Iowa and not in an industry town. And that's what I love about living here and working here. And, you know, as I've gotten older, and, and especially after COVID, I, my, my gigs are, you know, mostly within a five-hour radius. I haven't gone to Europe since COVID, obviously. Italy got hit really hard. In fact, we had a tour that we had to cancel. So what's next for you? Do you want to go on another national tour or international tour? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll probably, I'll pro it'll, it'll have, you know, I'm like, I'm going to, I've got a gig in Estes Park in a couple of weeks. Ooh, oh, yeah, that's going to be awesome. gorgeous country, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I still get around. I was in Detroit a few months ago, <laughs> a few months ago. I mean, you know, it's an old man talking, but, but no, I still travel, but, I, but, and I'll go to Europe as soon as that feels safe to me. Or, or actually as soon as they feel like it's safe. So yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I'm ready. I de I'm definitely due to make another record for Hire was the name, was the last record that I made. And, and that came out of, I had, <laughs> probably guys probably found this in your research, but I was very publicly arrested in 2010, I think maybe, no, maybe it was earlier than that, um, for trying to buy, you know, actually literally $10 worth of drugs from an undercover cop. Probably saved my life actually, you know, cause I got, I got cleaned up immediately thereafter. But it was on the front page of the register like multiple days in a row. And yeah, it, it threw a significant monkey wrench into my career. It's funny, everybody loves to see the rock and roll musician fucked up until, until you know, he's on the front page of the paper in handcuffs and then it's not quite so attractive. It's, it was never attractive, you know, but yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, and as you get older, I mean, you get caught up in this kind of pattern of behavior that, that is, you know, and I, and I'm an addict, I found out the hard way. So now I just, I have to abstain from everything. Um, and that's, you know, that's what works for me. But yeah, so I, I went through this and I got arrested um, in Dubuque on stage at a show, you know, it was full house and they, oh yeah, they cuffed me and took me away. And, and the Iowa City Police had called the Dubuque Police and said, we want you to serve this warrant. So I didn't know it was coming. And yeah, it was, it was, it was ugly. And then, and then the local, you know, the, actually the Gazette was even worse because every time I had a hearing, they would just run the same like little AP wire thing on the first or second page. I was just like, you Fuckers. Like, come on, at least write something new. Like, this is, yeah, but it cost, you know, and it, it, it yeah, it, it cost me a lot personally. And so that was right after the label went down and 
you know, my wife and I got divorced and then remarried, but um, it, it, it was not a bad thing for me in a lot of ways. Yeah. But, um, but so, yeah, that, that also happened. So what I discovered, at least in my life, so I was known as a pretty um, hard-charging partier, <laughs> especially high and lonesome, the whole band was. I mean, we were famous for, you know, like it was crazy, you know, people would be laying down, playing on stage. I mean, it was out of hand. So, and people loved it. And people gave me drugs a lot, you know, and said, let's wind him up. And, let, you know, I mean, it was part of the shtick. And, you know, part of it is as you age, that gets less and less. I mean, it's just, it's, it's ugly when somebody's young, but when you get middle age, it's like, oh my God, that's sad. Yeah, and it's sad, and it's a sad thing. And when you're constantly fucked up, I mean, you know, I was a high-functioning addict in, in that, you know, I mean, I was, a, yeah, I was addicted to opiates, cocaine. I was the classic poly drug addict. And I drank, even though I didn't like to drink much, but just because, you know, you do all those stimulants, you drank a lot. It, it was just awful. And so, but my community was, you know, I had a lot of success. I was treated very well. I worked with a lot of guys with high profile careers who took me under the wing and very general, generously kind of mentored me. And I didn't realize how many people in my community resented that. I just thought everybody, you know, loved me. <laughs> you don't love me? Uh, so there was a lot of people, it, it, it had nothing to do with the music, you know? So I had a lot of people that liked me for no good reason, but a lot of people that were nursing real dislike for me. And it came out when I got arrested because people were like, oh, now you see, now you see. And then they, a lot of people kicked me when I was down. And i sure I deserve some of it, but like my mother who, you know, who, lives there and had a, a pretty high profile job at the University Hospital, University of Iowa Hospitals. Read, I said, don't get online and read these, you know, chat room, you know, the newspaper letters to the, mm -hmm. but she did. And there was some ugly, ugly shit that came out. So, you know, yeah, I mean, part of me at first was resentful of that, but it also you gotta own this shit. I mean, you can't go <laughs> gallivanting around, you know, like Keith Richards. <laughs> unless you're Keith Richards, right? Unless you're really fucking rich. And, um, or, you know, you're gonna have to answer to it. And I'll never forget, I was in, I had gone back to Dubuque after I got arrested and they finally, I finally managed to get out of this jail. Iowa City was gonna leave me up there, like, apparently, believe it or not, in a democracy, they can leave you up there for a couple months before your next hearing, right? So they had done an accident on my paperwork, so I had this incredibly high bail, right, that nobody was gonna, that I couldn't do it. And so finally, uh, an old sheriff up there just drove me to Iowa City and they just let me out. And they're like, this is bullshit, bang, go. And so, <laughs> right? I mean, this is the only time I'd ever been arrested. But I got a call. So the Iowa City police, I think, let the Des Moines Register know where I was hiding out in Dubuque, right? I was just up there. My wife was like, don't come home. So my car's up there. My drugs were up there, which I luckily didn't get arrested with. And I just said, fuck it, I'm going, I'm going to go up there and just you know, drown my sorrows. So I was feeling very bitter and very like, you know, self-pitying. And I got a call from a writer from the register. And I, she said, um, you have a quote for us. And I said, man, it didn't, isn't there some news? Like, it was during that, one of the Iraq wars. I said, somebody died in fucking Iraq? Like, like, and she said, well, Mr. Zolo, after a cursory examination of our databases, I see that you've had 17 pieces, you know, profiles done on you and they've all been positive. And I was like, okay, fair enough. You're right. Like she was, she totally was right. And it, and it, and from that point onward, I realized, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't, you can't think, 
you know, when shit's going good, good on me. And when shit's going bad, it's all your fault. And it's, right. it was my fault. And, and I gave her a quote and I gave her the most, you know, what the fuck do you, <laughs> it sucks. Like, you know, what do you want me to say? It's terrible. You know, my in-laws are in Des Moines. My parents are in Iowa City. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like I was, so yeah, I lost a lot of gigs. You know, it was about a, a couple of years where I was, I was definitely, and people were surprised. They're like, wow, you must be a glutton for punishment. I was like, that's just what I do. Like, like, what do you want me to do? Like, I'm not going to sell insurance. I'm not going to fucking work at the come and go. I'm a, I'm a musician and that's what I still am. So I'm, I feel very blessed that uh, enough people allowed me the grace and the forgiveness, you know, to get back on the horse but not back on the horse, because that, that's a euphemism for doing heroin, and I don't anymore, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and that's, I owe that to the people of Iowa, really. I mean, and, and Iowa City, where I live, but, but really the whole state, because I, I, you know, I work the whole state regularly. And um, a lot of people you know, in this business look at that as, as like some kind of failing, but to me, I see that as like you know, a real gift, and it really allowed me to kind of recenter myself and, and, and remember who I was before the drugs, you know, took control and, get, and you know, they always take control. Well, I was going to tell you, like, congratulations for beating Thank that you. addiction. Yeah. Everything else that I've done besides being a father, that's the thing that has been the most to me um, gratifying because it's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. You know, yeah. it is not easy, but, but if you've got stuff to live for and you can get out of that, in, that initial you know, because it's, it's it's not going to be easy. I mean, you know, if you because usually you're going to hit bottom. I mean, although I I don't think people realize that, you know, there's there's further <laughs> there's further to fall, and you know, bottom is just when you stop falling. And so if you're lucky and you're alive, or and and you and your family has not been totally alienated, then you can yeah. But thank you because yeah, it it is something that I'm I'm really really proud of, and I really you be, and yeah. I encourage other musicians, you know, other artists, other people I know, just doing whatever they do, that if they're struggling, especially now, because with fentanyl, you know, I, I to think that Tom Petty and Prince both were murdered by counterfeit drugs that were fentanyl that. That's so insane. If, if you would have told me that 20 years ago, I'd say, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Two of our greatest artists, at least in rock and roll, were murdered <clears throat> by taking counterfeit drugs. And both of them took drugs in secret. And I think that tells you a lot about the dangers of drug abuse. And today, can't do that. Take drugs in secret, you will die. Because mm -hmm. um, fentanyl's everywhere. Right. I mean, they put in cocaine. So like, I mean... You know, if you're some frat boy, weed. they put it in fucking weed. I know, right. Yeah, you go take a toot of Coke and you think, I'm going to go out and have some drinks. And it's got fentanyl. And you're not opioid tolerant, dead. You're, you're dead. I mean, you, you, there's no Narcan in the world that'll, that'll bring you back. You have no control over it. You know, and then, like, like I said, I was a high-functioning addict. My grandfather, the musician, was a high-functioning alcoholic um, and drank until he died, or until he had a stroke and couldn't drink anymore, right? Um, it will own you in ways you did not know you could be owned and and so I thought I was you know I didn't think anybody knew like I thought I was fucking cool like like nobody knows and finally somebody's like man everybody knows you are fucked up beyond belief and I was like excuse me you know I owned a home I you know I all the things that are the trappings of 
success in America. And, and, and this thing, th this disease knows no bounds, you know. It, you rich, poor, you know, you look at the healthcare profession, 11% or whatever it is, will become opioid dependent. So they, and they have access to the drugs. So it's a little lower than the average population, but only because their penalties are so much greater. And they know how to do it without getting caught. But, you know, they're catching anesthesiologists, you know, with pick lines, which is a permanent port in your skin that they give to people that need, like, uh, chemotherapy. And they'll surgically implant one and then steal fentanyl from their patients. I mean, this has happened all over the country. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm very thankful that I'm, I'm on the other side of that. What has been your biggest career highlight? I don't know. I like I like not not what people would normally consider like a career highlight. Like not playing the Tonight Show. I mean that was fun and that was interesting. And I you know I didn't do it every day, but I mean I spent twelve hours in fucking traffic. You know like and and we had to you know, like take a seven a.m. bus you know to the studio from Hollywood because they want to put you up there. So it's like I've been to fucking Hollywood. Like can I stay closer to the studio so I don't have to get up at seven a.m.? That's what they don't tell you. No, they don't tell you that shit. Or, or that you're gonna have to join the L.A. music union so you know your check gets cut in half. Wow. And that's fine. I'm a pro labor kind of guy, but. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know. Like my, my probably my career high is thirty-two years, still alive, and and like beating a monkey off my back that was not your average spider monkey. It was an orangutan, full-grown, you know, trying to choke the life out of me. So, you know, be and and then being able to have a family, like I said, and be a part of a community, and feeling like that I have some organic relationship to the people around me, that I don't have to feel like what I do separates me from my community, but that brings me closer to the, my community, and that's important to me. Um, yeah, like I, I really do, I really am moved by, by what I do, you know? It, it, it really, I'm sure, is what keeps me sober, keeps me um, grounded, keep, you know, like it's, and I've dealt with a lot of grief and a lot of, um, you know, pain and, and through that, through the through the work. And so, the, I mean, not everybody gets the, an opportunity to work through their their issues in front of their community and, and then have people, you know, support that. So yeah. it is it's a it's a real blessing. And um, and because, I you know, I've I've enjoyed success, but I've also been on the other end of it. And and the two things are so diametrically opposed that. If you didn't have gratitude after that, you're pretty fucked. And I'm not the most prolific, but uh, but I uh, the craft of it, you know, I really love the song craft, and yeah, and I and I'm just as you know, I'm dazzled by the whole thing as I was. You know, it's not dis demystified from all these years of doing it. If, if anything, it's it's even more yeah amazing to me. Yeah. It's been such a joy speaking yeah, with you. you. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Um, you guys too. I have one last question I can think of. Emily, do you have any more? I don't so. My last question, do you have any advice for like, say, 19-year-olds yeah, yeah, yeah. in Iowa City that yeah. want to start a band, even just in a broad sense, sure, pursue yeah. some sort of so passion? So my first, like, my first thing is like, you know, I remember seeing this to a writer from the Iowa City Press Citizen a number of years ago, and it's like, the kids are all right. Just like the Who said, you know, like every, every generation will find, you know, has a voice. Mm -hmm. And, and I, having a, a kid who's like your guy's age or, or a little younger, like I am so blown away by how amazing your generation is because of of the way that you know there's not these kind of not the judgments that that you see 
you know, my generation, especially my parents' generation and their parents' generation. Um, and that's inspiring. But just in terms of like a general sense, like doing art is the only way it gets done, right? So doing something creative, it doesn't do itself. So people used to say, well, hey, you know, you started a record label, that's crazy. And I was like, yeah, it is. But, you know, like it wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, it, w it just never would have been done. So even though, you know, it might have ended in a bad way, the doing of it was an education. And it was, you know, I've, I learned so much from the people that I worked with. And that's the other thing. Always, always be willing to learn and open to learning because you've never got it licked. You know, you don't know, you know, you never, you've never mastered your craft. I don't care what kind of art you do. You know, you're not Van Gogh. I'm not, uh, you know, Chopin. I'm not Mick Jagger. I'm not, I'm fucking me, right? So uh, be yourself and just, and, and, and go after it. And, and, and then it will get done. And then, and, and, and you can't do anything after that. Like you can't do it for any other reason other than you're moved to do it. That's the other thing. Like, like doing art because it's a cool job. Uh, and it's not gonna, it's not gonna, I mean, it, it is a cool job, but only because you have that passion, right? I mean, I'm sure, I mean, being a fine artist, which is what my wife was training, that's a hard, where being a poet, you're fucking like one step above a dog in this world. I mean, like, if you don't have a faculty job with tenure, you're screwed. So, like, and I have friends who are poets, and it sucks to watch those poor people have to beg for grant money. I might be next. I mean, musicians might be next. It feels like we're moving back to an era of where patronage is necessary to do it, and that sucks. But, hey, you know, it is what it is. But, yeah, I think be yourself, be honest in the work, and just do it, you know. And it, and, it, and it'll get done. <laughs>